Good morning. Hello and welcome to the Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study for July 5th, 2020. Today's study will be led by Professor Michael and Steele, reading from Alma 23 to 29. I am Christian Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, are participating today in the background, may show up from time to time. First, let me take a few minutes for dialogue business. Our entire 50 plus year run of the Dialogue Journal, scholarship, personal essays, poetry, art, sermons, and more, including our most recent issue, are all available online free at dialoguejournal.com. There you can find links to other features, including our podcasts and our previous Gospel Sunday study sessions, these sessions, both video and audio. And of course, a donate link as free online also means dialogue depends on contributions. Regarding today's program, as we have been doing, we are using our webinar format, which does not allow you to interrupt or to see each other, but does allow the large number of participants that we have and does allow you to chat and pose questions. We ask as always that you do so respectfully and in keeping with our speaker's message. If there's time for discussion, we will pull comments and questions from the chat. We are recording this session and running a live stream on Facebook. Facebook runs a few seconds behind the Zoom experience. You may find it disconcerting if you happen to have both on at the same time. We've experienced some unexplained dropouts in the Facebook feed. And if that happens today, we will try to restart uh, as quickly as possible. We ask for your patience. Today, I am particularly pleased to introduce Professor Michael and Steele as our teacher. First, I will make our standard disclaimer. We asked Professor Steele today based on her talents, her reputation and dedication for her voice. We did not ask her to represent dialogue and we certainly did not ask and do not expect her to speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Professor Michael and Steele is a graduate of the Georgetown University Law Center and joined the faculty of BYU Law School in 2014. She teaches civil rights, federal Indian law, and constitutional law. Professor Steele worked for six years as a trial attorney in the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. Beginning in late 2009, she worked for several years as a counselor to the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, Larry Echohawk, at the U.S. Department of Interior. She is a member of the Seneca Nation of Indians of New York. Professor Steele holds a BA and an MA in Humanities from BYU with an emphasis in English Literature and Native American Studies. Before Professor Steele's lesson, we will enjoy Oh That I Were an Angel by Elder Cooper Howell and an opening prayer by Dr. Aaron Kramer Holmes, who is a Marjorie Pay Hinckley Associate Professor in the BYU School of Family Life. Dr. Holmes earned her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on parenting and the work-family interface. For her research in these areas, Dr. Holmes won the National Council on Family Relations Award for best research article by a new professional. She has received teaching and mentoring awards from the School of Family Life. She currently serves on the Global Women's Studies Executive Committee, the University Faculty Advisory Council, and the editorial boards of the Journal of Marriage. Turn my page. Uh, the Journal of Marriage and Family, Family Relations, and the Journal of Family Theory and Review. Both Aaron and Michaelin have helped lead BYU's Civil Rights Seminar. Our dear Father in Heaven, we are grateful that we can be gathered together um, online, that we can continue to learn and study together. We are grateful for the opportunity to learn from Professor Steele today. We pray that thou wilt be with her, that all of the things she has prepared will be fresh in her mind, that she will feel confident and comfortable, and that she will feel peace as she presents this information to us and as we learn together. We pray that thou wilt be with those who are fasting today, and pray that thou wilt be with those for whom they fast. And we pray that thou wilt continue to be with each of us in our own personal strivings, that thou wilt be aware of us, and that we will feel connected to thee in the ways that we seek to feel connected. And we pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Amen. Thank you, Erin, for that beautiful prayer. And I appreciate the, the musical number as well. I, I uh, selected that in part because it's taken from Alma 29. And I chose that particular video because uh, I uh, have a tender spot for missionaries, especially right now in the ways that uh, missionaries have experienced this uh, pandemic and uh, have a nephew who's on a mission in New York City. And, uh, and so I, I, I think about him uh, today and remember him in my uh, fasting and prayer. It's a great pleasure to be with you uh, uh, virtually. Um, I'm grateful for this technology and for the invitation uh, to be together and to talk about these chapters from the Book of Alma today. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's seven chapters. And so uh, there are a lot of things that will necessarily be left unsaid today, uh, unfortunately. But um, uh, I, I wanted to uh, extract a few of the things that I found most significant. I'm sorry that this uh, format doesn't allow us to um, interact as much as I would like and to hear what you've taken in your study of these chapters and these profound stories, the stories of, uh, of missionaries uh, returning, completing their mission, the sons of Mosiah after 14 years among the Lamanites, uh, Alma and Amulek with whom they meet up in chapter 29, having uh, them gone out to, their, to reclaim uh, the Nephites who had uh, fallen away and the joy of that service that they uh, found and uh, the rejoicing uh, in the blessings that the Lord had given them uh, uh, in the course of their <clears throat> missionary service and the miracles that they had seen. Uh, so that's one aspect of these chapters, but uh, just to put it, these chapters in some context, uh, in the prior chapters, immediately prior, we, we had read about the miraculous conversion of the Lamanites, uh, King Lamoni, and uh, uh, where they he had fallen as though as though dead, and his father was also um, converted in a miraculous way, and so Aaron and um, and Ammon had seen this tremendous miracle of being able to teach the kings, and being able to see uh, tremendous acceptance of their message from the uh, Lamanites. And uh, what distinguishes these chapters is the aftermath of that conversion and how the effects of accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, seeking to um, uh, keep those covenants, uh, how that played out in the lives of the anti-Nephi Lehi's um, as contrasted with the, the lives of the Amulonites, who were the descendants of the priests of King Noah, and the Amalekites, uh, who were also dissident Nephites. Um, and so we have in these chapters these kind of uh, tension, this kind of tension between how those peoples, uh, really how their hearts fared. Uh, I, I noticed a lot of language in these that tells us that the hearts of the um, anti-Nephi-Lehi's were softened by the spirit. And at the same time, the Amulonites and the Amalekites um, hardened their hearts and also hardened the hearts of the Lamanites who were around them. And that led to tremendous war and it certainly uh, led uh, to uh, death and sorrow in great measure. So, um, we come upon in Alma 23 and, and uh, beginning in these chapters, the story then uh, playing out of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's where they decide they want to be distinct. They don't want to be called Lamanites anymore. Uh, it had uh, been in some ways a political distinction, meaning um, not Nephites, and, um, uh, but uh, there were still um, ethnicities uh, in, associated with being uh, the Lamanites there, and uh, they decided that they would uh, no longer be called by that name, 
that they would be called by the name the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Um, okay, let's see. I'm going to attempt to work the technology, so if you will bear with me. I'm trying to just choose just the, the uh, not my whole desktop, but just the, just the PowerPoint. Michael, maybe you can do that for me. Oh, there it is. I see it now. Oops, nope, not that one, that one. Oops, sorry. All right, it keeps jumping off of the PowerPoint. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it, just. Okay, thanks. Trying to share my whole screen, which is, got this, got our video here. Thank you. Um, so if we could advance through the, the slides. Okay, uh, so in Alma 23, we see um, that uh, came to pass, they, were, they called their names anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they were called by this name and were no more uh, called Lamanites. And they began to be a very industrious people, yea, and they were friendly with the Nephites, therefore they did open a correspondence with them, and the curse of God did no more follow them. Um, I don't begin to know what this means. Do I think, uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of uh, sort of problematic language about what constitutes the curse um, in earlier chapters and in later chapters, it talks about the curse being associated uh, uh, at least for the Nephites. In the Nephites' mind, they associated that curse with the apparently the color of skin or the uh, skin of blackness. Uh, uh, that they they were a different you know hue or ethnicity than than the Nephites. Um, I understand the clarifications that have been uh, made that uh, indeed the curse has been the separation uh, from the priesthood and the separation from the people of of God from the covenants uh, that they had made uh, and uh, the loss of the spirit. And the loss of the um, uh, of the access to to the uh, to the faith uh, is is the curse, and that would make sense with this verse that indeed the curse of God did follow them no more. They had access to the covenants of the priesthood, the ordinances of the priesthood, uh, and and to the prophets of God, and to the scriptures, and to the gifts of the Spirit. Um, Okay, let's see. I that's looking to me, Michael, like it's not the updated uh, version of the of of the uh, PowerPoint. So, um, it, it's the one you just sent. It is okay. Yeah. I may have to see if it will grab mine here. Um, but with or without the PowerPoint, um, there are a couple of themes that emerge from these chapters. Um, one is the nature of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's becoming a new people, um, putting away their sin and making covenants with God that included a symbol of that covenant that they buried their weapons. Um, as I approached these chapters, I really did so with two guiding questions. Uh, which I have taken to be the questions that guide me um, in my study of the Book of Mormon uh, this year. The first question being, uh, what do, do these chapters teach me about the Savior? And the second being, how can I use these cha chapters uh, to improve my discipleship uh, of Jesus Christ? And so um, 
given those shaping thoughts, uh, those shaping questions of those, that inquiry, um, I think there's a few things that we learn uh, about the Savior. Um, I have in my study, I've been using the Gospel Library app and I've created a tag that is for every time it teaches me something about the Savior um, in connection with uh, the task that President Nelson had given us to read the, the Book of Mormon with an eye toward it's, it as a testament of Jesus Christ. What is it teaching me in each of these verses? And the word that kept coming out to me in these chapters uh, was mercy. How great is the mercy of our God, that God is a merciful God. Um, and so um, if I can, let me see if I can, uh, I'm going to try it again. I guess I'm an optimist here. Okay, so you're seeing, you're seeing these now, right? Um, that for the quest, um, what does it teach us about God and why is it important that we know the attributes, uh, the character of God, the nature of God? Uh, from John, he teaches us this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Uh, in that quest uh, to know the Savior, that we might more fully be his disciples, I see the, the following themes emerge. The great mercy of God, the pacifism, martyrdom, and zeal of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that, as we talked about, their hearts were made soft by the Spirit, and contrasting that to the warmongering and hatred uh, of the uh, Amulekites and the Amulonites, they hardened their hearts against everything good. Uh, in after the, the tremendous wars, they said it was a, the greatest battle that had yet been among the people of the Nephites and Lamanites, and there were tens of thousands of dead. Uh, the scriptures teach us about mourning and the inequality of man. And then the other theme that runs through these chapters is the overwhelming joy of the returning missionaries, Alma and Amulek, and the sons of Mosiah and the miracles that that they had had witnessed. Um, so, with regard to God's mercy, uh, they had named the father of Lamoni had died, and had appointed in his stead anti his son anti Nephi Lehi, um, and uh, he becomes the king. And there's sort of a psalm of anti-Nephi-Lehi in Alma 24. This is a brief excerpt from it, wherein he teaches about God's great mercy. He says, And the great God has had mercy on us and made these things known unto us that we might not perish. Yea, and he has made these things known unto us beforehand because he loveth our souls as well as he loveth our children. Therefore, in his mercy, he doth visit us by his angels, that the plan of salvation might be made known unto us, as well as unto future generations. Oh, how merciful is our God. Similarly, at the close of his mission, uh, uh, Ammon reflects on the great mercy of God in Alma 26. Therefore, let us glory, yea, we will glory in the Lord, we will rejoice, for our joy is full. This is after he's been corrected by his brother, who says, Ammon, you're getting a little carried away. I fear you're carried into boasting here. And Ammon says, I, I don't boast of myself, but I will boast of God. Who can glory too much in the Lord? Yea, who can say too much of his great power and of his mercy and of his long suffering towards the children of men? Behold, I say unto you, I cannot say the smallest part which I feel. And he reflects on his own redemption, that they had gone about uh, as uh, the sons of Mosiah, the sons of the king, they had gone about seeking to destroy the church. Why did he not consign us to an awful destruction? Yea, why did he not let the sword of his justice fall upon us and doom us to eternal despair? 
Oh, my soul, almost as it were, fleeth at the thought. But behold, he did not exercise his justice upon us, but in his great mercy hath brought us over that everlasting gulf of death and misery, even to the salvation of our souls. So um, I, I really uh, appreciate uh, the beauty of the message and the testimony of those who felt most keenly the redemption and mercy of God testifying of it, the sons of Mosiah who had uh, turned away from their sins and the, uh, and the Lamanites who had repented of uh, the evil they had done, which they said included um, uh, murder. In uh, recognition of that repentance, uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's um, became pacifists. They covenanted that they would never take up arms again, lest the sins that they had um, uh, committed return um, to the... Uh, return to the uh, uh, to stain their swords or to stain their souls again um, and so <clears throat> let's look at those chapters uh, those verses for just a minute um, so uh, the anti-nephi-lehi's uh, while the Amulonites and, and Amulekites, uh, the dissident Nephites, uh, doubled down on their, um, uh, on their uh, grievances and their warmongering and stirred up the hearts, hardened the hearts of the remaining Lamanites, um, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's took a covenant with God that they would bury their weapons of war. And in so doing, they, uh, they didn't just sort of hide from the armies that were coming uh, to them, that were seeking to dethrone anti-Nephi-Lehi, the king. They went out to meet the invading armies, prostrated themselves in prayer, and preferred to die rather than risk returning to their prior sins. Um, and uh, they did die. They laid down their lives uh, as the armies fell upon them, uh, the armies of the Lamanites and the Amulekites and Amulonites um, fell upon them. They suffered themselves to uh, uh, suffer death, um, which uh, caught out some of the Lamanites who were part of the uh, invading army and or the warring faction. And uh, they stopped and threw down their weapons. And uh, it says that many were converted unto the Lord. It says, in fact, uh, although salvation is not a numbers game per se, uh, that they were uh, more souls were joined to them than perished that day. Um, they became distinguished for their zeal. Um, Alma 23, verse 7, they became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion that they did not fight against God anymore neither against any of their brethren. Um, and once they were converted, they never did fall away. Um, they, they maintained that faith. Um, in, in Alma 24, the, I, I don't know, I think it might be Mormon uh, in the collecting of these stories who comments on the nature of their faith and the endurance and zealotry of their faith and, and zealotry in a good way. Um, talking about them burying their weapons, this they did, it being in their view a testimony to God and also to men that they never would use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. And rather than take away from a brother, they would give unto him. And rather than spend their days in idleness, they would labor abundantly with their hands. So in the covenant that they made, it was not just to abandon the weapons of war. 
they covenanted to walk with God in their daily lives. Rather than take away from a brother, they would give. They covenanted to let that conversion uh, that they had undergone uh, fully guide their discipleship, that their uh, actions were thereafter rooted in their love for God and, uh, and not in um, um, the enmity that can happen between uh, God's children. Alma, or Marone, Mormon says, and thus we see that when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace or they buried the weapons of war for peace. So uh, can you see me? I'm not sure if you can see me. Yes. Okay, great. Um, this reminds me of a um, story from the tradition of uh, uh, the Seneca people, the idea of burying their weapons of war and seeking after peace. So um, the Seneca nation is part of what is traditionally called the Iroquois Confederacy or uh, in their own language, in our own language, the Haudenosaunee, and that is the tribes of the Seneca, the, uh, uh, on, the, the Cayuga, the Oneida, the Onondaga, and the Mohawk, and later the Tuscarora Nation was adopted in. And so uh, they, there was a time, the story is told, of uh, great wars, and in fact, human life had been so devalued in the culture that they forgot how to mourn. They uh, used neighbors and others sort of for target practice uh, is the way the story is told, that um, they just raided other villages and um, there was great concern that they had forgotten how to value human life. The story is told that there is a man named the Peacemaker. He couldn't be killed. And uh, he decided that peace was better than war. And he decided to take that message among the people. Um, he met up with a man whose seven daughters had been killed as part of this uh, terrible time. And uh, the man who had been his seven daughters had been killed, um, went insane with grief. He didn't have any outlet for his mourning and his hair got matted and he wandered and the, he, he'd wandered uh, aimlessly from village to village and in the woods and he could not be consoled. And he kept meeting different people and they would say, uh, are you hungry? Are you cold? They didn't, they could not recognize what was wrong with him. And he couldn't necessarily recognize what was wrong with him, but it was mourning. And the people had forgotten how to mourn. So he decided that since no one could sort of meet his needs, he decided that he would devise a ceremony and what he would say if he met someone who uh, was in a similar situation to him. And he began to devise this ceremony of what he would say, that he would take what he called a white fawn skin of pity, and he would wipe the tears from their eyes so that they could see the beauty of the, of the sun. He said he would open their ears so that they could hear the laughter of children again. He said he would help open their throat because when you're so sad and grieving, your throat closes up, you can't swallow good. And so he went on devising a ceremony like this, a ritual of condolence. And eventually the peacemaker met up with this man and he began to say those words. He began to perform the ritual of condolence. And the two of them went 
uh, on a sort of mission where they were trying to teach the people that peace was better than war and it was a radical message. So the two of them went among the people and taught that peace was better than war. Um, and they founded what became the Iroquois Confederacy or the, um, uh, they planted what was called the Great Tree of Peace. Um, so I know you can't see this all that well, but this is what's called a wampum belt. It uses um, shells. It, it's purple and white. I know this is, sorry, this is a black and white picture. But what's being represented here, and I'm sorry it's cut off, but there are the tribes of the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee, and at the center is the great tree of peace. Once people, the people accepted their message of the, uh, that peace was better than war, once they had taught them the ritual of mourning and they recognized and relearned that it was important to bury bodies and it was important to uh, mourn those who passed on and to value uh, human life, they decided that to symbolize that, they would uproot the largest white pine and they would throw all of their weapons into the hole that was left and then plant over those weapons the great tree of peace. And they said, all were welcome in the shade of the great tree of peace. And they're all connected. And then, so for these tribes, they, they form what is essentially uh, the Confederacy or the, the League of the Iroquois uh, or Haudenosaunee, and they um, conceive of themselves as living in one great longhouse. The Seneca, where I'm, my tribe, um, they are uh, what's called the keepers of the Western Door. We're the westernmost tribe. And, and uh, the Onondaga are the keepers of the fire. They are in the center. And then uh, the Mohawks are the easternmost tribe and they are the keepers of the Western Door. And so the lands that uh, are the homelands of uh, the Haudenosaunee people uh, which is currently called New York, uh, they envisioned that that was a great uh, uh, longhouse over which they were all one family. And the founding of that confederacy was marked by the burying of their weapons uh, and a proclamation that peace was better than war and a proclamation that you had to know how to mourn and that the people had forgotten that lesson um, was part of the cause of their uh, of their great uh, sorrow and troubles. Um, I present that story just because it has echoes of this story to me of, of what happened among the Lamanites. Um, and I, I'm aware that there's also a Mesoamerican tradition of burying things that um, are, it's, it's a way of uh, dedicating uh, those things to God. And so, um, it gives, I think, some additional context for the notion of um, uh, what's, what's happening here. Um, and uh, the Iroquois then went on to establish a constitution. Uh, among the tenets of that constitution was that the leaders could not act in self-interest. If they acted in self-interest, they could be removed um, by uh, grandmothers. Um, I, I like to say, I'd like to see a similar provision in our constitution, right? That you can't act in self-interest or uh, you'll be removed by grandmothers. But then I like to say, well, we do have the power to remove those who act in self-interest if we will use it. Um, so, um, that's the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They were distinguished by their zeal, by their peaceful walk. They were uh, so loath to risk sin uh, that they would lay down their lives rather than um, take up arms again against their brethren. Um, saying it, it, it was all we could do to repent and we just can't risk going back to that. 
Um, and so they buried those weapons as a testament at the last day that their weapons were left without stain, that um, they had um, put away their sins. And I think their story challenges us to ask ourselves um, what sins we might bury and what, what, what might we put away to more effectively keep our covenants, to more effectively um, live out our, our discipleship. So uh, the, the people of anti-Nephi, Lehi then um, are being slaughtered uh, somewhat. The Amulonites and Amulekites are still looking for war. They get mad about um, the people that left and the people that were killed. And so uh, they start a new war and head over to the Nephites, go against them. And the city that they hit is the city of Ammonihah which was the city that um, rejected Alma and Amulek. And uh, they started to leave and the Lord sent them back and said, go back to Ammonihah and tell them if they don't repent, they're going to be destroyed. And so they went back and delivered that message. They were cast out again. And in rejecting the message of Alma and Amulek, um, the city of Ammonihah residents uh, said, who is God? that he could destroy this city. This is, the city is too great. He can't destroy our city. Um, but that's what happened. And there wasn't a soul living after the invasion from these dissident Nephites and, and, uh, and the unconverted Lamanites. They did destroy in a single day the entire city of Ammonihah. And, and uh, among the things that they did was cause any who believed um, to be put to death by fire, which also fulfilled the prophecy of Abinadi, who had said that the priests of Noah who put him to death by fire, that their descendants would put many believers by fire. And they do that in these chapters and fulfill that prophecy of Abinadi. So the wars continue. The, the, um, Ammon is very, uh, uh, stricken by seeing the people that he loved and who loved him so well uh, dying in this way. Um, he's uh, amazed by their faith. And he says, um, why don't you go, let's go over to the Nephites and see if they'll, if they'll give you a land and protect you. And anti-Nephi Lehi says, they'll, they'll never do it. We've had too many wars. We've, we've sinned against them too much. They won't accept us. Um, but maybe we could go be their slaves. And um, Ammon says, well, um, slavery is illegal, but if, if the Lord says to go, will you go? And, and Anti-Nephi-Lehi says, well, yeah, if the Lord says to go, we'll go. So Ammon goes and asks of the Lord, and um, I don't think I have it right here, but um, um, I thought it was really interesting, the... Um, the, the message was so direct from the Lord. Let me find it here. I think it's in 26 or 27. Yes, it's 27 verse 12. So Ammon goes and inquires of the Lord. And it's interesting that it took Ammon inquiring of the Lord to get this message. But once he got it, it was very direct. The Lord said unto him, get this people out of this land that they perish not. For Satan has great hold on the hearts of the Amalekites who do stir up the Lamanites to anger against their brethren to slay them. Therefore, get thee out of this land, and blessed are the people in this generation, for I will preserve them. It was such a direct message. Yeah, get them out. And so they go and ask the Nephites if, um, uh, if they would accept them. And uh, the Nephites give them the land of Jershon and place themselves between the anti-Nephi-Lehites, who then become known as the people of Ammon, and uh, the uh, warring factions among the Lamanites. 
so that they protect them and the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi's uh, offer their sustenance and pay sort of tribute to support the armies of the Nephites. Uh, but they're accepted and welcomed. Um, a tremendous battle. This is when the battle that is bigger than any other battle heretofore happens in um, in verse in chapters 27 and uh, 28. And um, in 28, starting in verse 2, there was a tremendous battle. Even such a one has never has never has been known among all the people in the land from the time. Lehi left Jerusalem, yea, and tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad. Yea, and also there was a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi. Nevertheless, the Lamanites were driven and scattered, and the people of Nephi returned again to their land. Um, these next verses, so... I actually am a little bit ahead of the Come Follow Me in my study, and I read these chapters uh, in early June, just as the murder of George Floyd uh, and uh, Breonna Taylor and a, a number of the others, the, the man whose name I'm forgetting right now, but he was just out jogging, right? And, and um, it brought back into focus the systemic inequity um, that uh, we live under and that in particular uh, Black Americans live under. Um, and the outcry, <laughs> the expression of tremendous mourning um, that you know, spilled into the streets. And I found this, these chapters of Alma to be particularly uh, insightful and moving in light of that reality uh, that, that we're currently living. Um, so Alma 28 in verse four. Now this was a time that there was a great mourning and lamentation heard throughout all the land. And I think we have certainly seen tremendous mourning and lamentation in our day. Uh, in recent weeks and years. Yea, the cry of widows mourning for their husbands and also of fathers mourning for their sons and the daughter for the brother, yea, the brother for the father. And thus the cry of mourning was heard among all of them, mourning for their kindred who had been slain. And now surely this was a sorrowful day. Yea, a time of solemnity and a time of much fasting and prayer. Um, I remember I was living in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 uh, happened. And to think of the lives that were lost on that day, um, as the day closed, um, and it felt so uh, profoundly, the world felt so profoundly changed, and the loss of our brothers and sisters was so tremendous. Uh, and this idea was whispered to me so that uh, on the evening of 9-11, of I began a fast so that I could express that, that solemnity and mourning um, on 9-12. And that was a tremendous comfort to me. And it felt like, in many ways, the only appropriate response. So to ask if you are fasting today, that you would remember those who are mourning our, of our brothers and sisters, um, those who are mourning uh, that they feel like their lives don't matter, right? Um, or that the, the lives of their brothers and sisters have been utterly wasted or murdered by those who act uh, in our name and who are charged with protecting us. Um, it makes me feel solemn and it makes me feel like I want to fill my covenant to mourn with them as they mourn, to bear their burdens um, and uh, to uh, partake of the sorrowful day that we find ourselves living in with uh, fasting and prayer on their behalf. And that we might be, I guess, um, 
instruments of peace for making the world better. And that feels like a really daunting challenge. Um, and uh, for that, I turn uh, to the advice of someone who I think's, think does more to make the world better uh, than most of us combined. And that's Brian Stevenson, um, who is the author of Just Mercy. Um, many of you are aware that he came and spoke at BYU in a forum a few uh, last, last year or the year before. And uh, one of his great messages, he works as an attorney uh, who mostly defends people who have been uh, convicted uh, uh, for capital crimes, uh, but who have not received fair trials or who in fact may be innocent. He also works to help uh, uh, diminish the punishment that juveniles receive um, who uh, have made grievous errors, but find themselves paying for it with, for the rest of their lives. And so, um, I turned to, uh, to uh, Brian Stevenson for a little bit of advice about how we might help bear the burdens of those around us. Um, and he says, you cannot be an effective problem solver from a distance. There are details and nuances to problems that you will miss unless you are close enough to observe those details. He calls that getting proximate, that you don't put a barrier between yourself and the pain of others, a remove, but you get proximate to that pain, you share it. I think that's bearing one another's burdens and, uh, and uh, mourning with them, uh, rejoicing with them when they rejoice, getting proximate to their sorrow and also uh, to their joy. He says, we must get proximate to suffering and understand the nuanced experiences of those who suffer from and experience inequality. He believes that if you're willing to get closer to people who are suffering, you will find the power to change the world. Uh, I really admire his optimism given everything that he has seen and experienced in the constant parade of injustices that he's exposed to. And yet he gets up every day, he gets proximate to those who are suffering and he seeks to make the world better for them. And I take a great lesson in that. I wish I were better at it. He says we have to change the narratives that uh, narratives that fail to acknowledge or accurately portray the reality of inequality only serve to perpetuate it. Um, and so um, we should be part of telling a new narrative, a new story about um, uh, how our brothers and sisters experience um, inequality. Uh, he says, we must stay hopeful about what we can do to end injustice. And, um, you know, there's certainly much more that we, that we can do besides fasting and praying and mourning. Uh, we can take action and uh, be engaged in the issues of our day. Uh, but to those efforts, I would encourage us to add fasting and, and prayer. Um, we must be willing to do things that are uncomfortable fighting sometimes in vain for the rights of some of the most downtrodden members of society can feel uncomfortable however there is restorative power in doing so through his often heartbreaking work he has realized that he is committed to working for equality not only because he wants to fix a broken system but because he recognizes his own brokenness in the brokenness of he serves that each of us are are broken um, each of us has sorrow and being able to see that empathy, uh, to develop that empathy and wipe away the tears uh, of, of those who are suffering uh, as the peacemaker did um, and to build something new, to spread the message that peace is better than war, that justice is better than uh, injustice. Um, that those messages are, are worth sharing and that is a society worth building and it behooves each of us uh, to uh, be part of those solutions. Um, so in Alma and in the aftermath of all this mourning, in the aftermath of uh, all the dead and the tremendous prayer and fasting that followed, um, 
I found this verse also very interesting. It's Alma 28, uh, verses 12 to 14. Let me, I guess I'll share the screen again here. Um, talks about all the bodies of the thousands who were buried, many thousands lost. Uh, while many other thousands truly mourn for the loss of their kindred, yet they rejoice and exult in the hope and even know according to the promises of the Lord that they are raised to dwell at the right hand of God in a state of never ending happiness. This is, I think, an editorialization again from Mormon with his, and thus we see, there's a lot of those in these verse, in these chapters, but, and thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression. Want to know the root of inequality in our society? It's sin and transgression and the power of the devil, which comes by the cunning plans with which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. Again, we're being asked to check our hearts. Uh, are they soft or are they hard? Are they free to love or are they ensnared by, um, by uh, Satan's uh, uh, cunning? And thus we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. And thus we see the great reason of sorrow and also of rejoicing. Sorrow because of death and destruction among men and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. Um, so those are some of the themes that I see emerging uh, in, in these scriptures. Um, the great mercy of God, the zeal and commitment of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, even unto death, they would rather suffer death than renege on their covenants. Um, they would walk with their fellow man according to those covenants and according to the discipleship that they had taken upon them. We see the contrast between the hard hearts of the Amulonites and Amalekites. Mormon tells us that uh, it, it is in part because they had rebelled against the light that they had been given um, that, uh, that hardened their hearts. Um, we see Ammon's psalm about God's mercy and anti-Nephi-Lehi's psalm about uh, mercy. Um, we see one more uh, idea, I think, in these verses that I'd like to include before I close and we open it to uh, whatever questions or comments you may have. I know we're pushing the time here, but um, there's so much. I might just go ahead and bring back the three-hour block for just, just for today. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I was not sorry to see the three-hour block go go away. Um, so the other thing that is, uh, I think, made clear in these verses uh, is found in Alma 29, verse 8. And we see this a couple of different times, a couple of different ways in these chapters. And it, it comes during this... Uh, Ammon's great rejoicing, he meets up in 29 with Alma and Amulek and the sons of Mosiah. They are, after a 14-year mission to the Lamanites, they are reunited and their joy is overwhelming. Even some of them fell to the ground. They were so overtaken with joy. Um, and um, that's why uh, Alma starts to say, I, I wish I were an angel and I could just shake the earth with the voice of a trump to make known the goodness of God and the plan of redemption that, that he's um, given. He says, but I'm a man and do sin in my wish. I ought to be content with the things that God has given me. And he says, um, in, in verse eight, this is the part, I, I don't think I have it separately, but this is the part that... Um, I think teaches us another thing. If we're asking ourselves, what do we learn about the Savior, about the character and nature of God in these chapters? In 29 verse 8, he says, For behold, the Lord doth grant unto all nations 
of their own nation and tongue to teach his word. Yea, in wisdom all that he seeth fit that they should have. Therefore we see that the Lord doth counsel in wisdom according to that which is just and true. I do think it is a true uh, characteristic of God that he loves all of his children. And whatever nation, whatever tongue, he gives them light and truth uh, in their own languages, in their own symbols, in their own way. Um, and that um, the more open we are uh, to the truths he has given to all nations, uh, the more we are poised to uh, learn about God and his true nature and character. So with that, I, I thank you again for the opportunity and I would just uh, add my own testimony um, that I know God is a merciful God, that he is long suffering and kind. Above all else, he is kind, uh, that through his son, he has stayed the hand of justice and allowed us to choose mercy if we will uh, make those covenants and keep them, if we will repent, if we will choose to walk peaceably with our, our, our fellow human beings, uh, that he will hear us and uh, forgive us. That great forgiveness, the joy of forgiveness that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's experienced, that the sons of Mosiah and Alma experienced, their tremendous kind of dramatic conversion uh, we experience in the day today, I think, of uh, little by little uh, improving our discipleship uh, and following the Savior Jesus Christ. And I leave that with you in his name. Amen. Amen. So I have not been Michael. able to keep up with the comments. Uh, uh, but well, let, let me introduce a few. I, a number of us are delighted by the idea of the grandmothers making a yeah. final decision. But uh, I well, think the thing- As long as the grandmas aren't watching Fox News, then I'm behind. <laughs> uh, uh, there, uh, we would like you to talk a little bit more about the idea of, of transformative mourning. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the message of fasting and prayer and mourning, mm -hmm. making for change, um, being transformative. Mm -hmm. Would you address that? Uh, that's the, that's sure. the idea that is rich out of this. Yeah, I think that it really is tied into what I understand to be Brian Stevenson's message about getting proximate. It means seeing and acknowledging and sitting with the pain. Um, I, I heard uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the, um, she's the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which she's sort of the, uh, in the seat that Thurgood Marshall had, right? Charles Hamilton Houston, and um, she said, people keep asking her lately, um, you know, this is really upsetting. I've got a knot in my stomach as I think about these things. And she said, yeah, I've had a knot in my stomach since I was 21. And so um, I think turning to the Lord for comfort, turning to action for comfort, not um, uh, turning to the suffering to comfort us or tell us it's going to be okay or to make their suffering go away on our time frame and our time schedule. And so I do think that, um, you know, uh, I do think that fasting and prayer helps us to be more in a position to understand how best to mourn with those who mourn, how to understand and be sensitive to their needs and how to take action that, um, comforts those who stand in need of comfort. Um, and I think part of that actually is the ability to rejoice with those who rejoice. I think about um, that covenant to mourn with those who mourn, and I think it's not possible to keep it if we're not willing to take joy in the accomplishments and the good uh, happenings of other people. That, that, that's a lesson I got from my grandmother. It's how you multiply your own joy is to really, she really rejoiced and enjoyed 
other people's good fortunes and their success. And uh, rather than seeing sort of joy as a zero sum game, if something good happens to you, then it means something bad for me. And I really appreciate that life lesson that she taught me and that she modeled that um, uh, part of being true to the covenant to mourn with others is to rejoice with others. And uh, I think fasting and prayer not only helps release some blessings from heaven on behalf of those who are suffering, it's transformative of us in that it puts us a position, in a position to be um, uh, soft of heart and ready to hear. Um, I think even just the experience of being hungry helps teach us empathy for those who go without, who have hunger of uh, body and soul um, and understand that uh, um, there are people who are going without whatever it is, whether it's truth or love or friendship or whatever they're going without, um, just to put us in mind of them and help us to be more compassionate in, uh, in, in their sorrows. So, so it strikes me, sorry to jump in, um, it strikes me that, uh, that the prayer and fasting that were taught in these scriptures and that you, that you brought out um, requires us to um, put our minds and our hearts and our souls and, and our physical bodies mm -hmm. um, into, our, into this morning um, and uh, really connect us um, wholly um, with God's children. Yeah, we hold nothing back, right? We don't keep ourselves at a remove from those who are suffering, but we walk with them, we sit with them, and sometimes we let them, uh, you know, just, we just share in their pain. And I, I thank you so much for sharing um, the story of the Seneca and um, other uh, Native peoples. Um, I'm really struck by the idea of living in the longhouse together mm -hmm. and uh, being keepers of the door. And that really um, suggests a, a very active um, mourning and rejoicing that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, Chris, read, go no, back. You can read the ceremony. It's called the Ritual of Condolence, and it is written down. And it was strung together. I didn't connect the wampum, but they, uh, the man, his name was Hayanwata, who made the ceremony, who wished someone would say that ceremony to him. He, he, he said, these are the words I would say, and he used shells and strung them in a wampum to, as reminders. They were sort of mnemonic devices to help him remember. And then when he came across the peacemaker, um, the peacemaker began to say those words to him and wiped away his grief and comforted him, combed his hair right and it cleaned him up and then made him into uh, uh, a partner a companion as it were in their mission to teach that peace was better than war oh push the right button michael and i'm i'm tempted to just close with a recognition i i do see some questions and and I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about um, the tensions that sometimes people talk about between justice and mercy mm -hmm. um, and some of those questions raised in these in these chapters of, yeah. of what is just and what is merciful and and how we should be part of that well, that's an excellent question. I've also created a little tag for my scripture study that is justice and mercy so that I can pull up those scriptures in my, I'm, I'm watching for them and flagging them as I read. Um, so I worked, as you said in the introduction, I worked for six years in the Department of Justice. Um, it would have been fun to work in the Department of Mercy, but they don't have one. So um, our you know, our laws are, are not, uh, not perfect, right? Even the D Department of Justice doesn't always do justice or our laws don't result in justice. Um, but the divine laws, I mean, the idea that God is a God of laws and he is subject to law and some of the eternal laws by which he abides, 
are the laws of justice and the laws of mercy. And so um, he, you know, we're taught in the Book of Mormon that justice can't rob mercy, but neither can mercy rob justice. This was built into the plan from the beginning that although you break the law, eternal laws, there is a punishment affixed that because of the law of mercy, the Savior would endure that punishment that we might not suffer and uh, upon conditions of repentance. And so um, justice and mercy are kind of a yin and yang. They kind of go hand in hand. They, um, they are eternal laws, um, but through the Savior, both laws can be perfectly fulfilled. It says if God did not obey those laws, he would cease to be God but God ceaseth not to be God. He has provided for the law of justice to be satisfied and the law of mercy to be satisfied. And we can choose which would we like to be subject to? Which would, we, would we like to be subject to the law of mercy through the Savior? Or would we like justice for, as recompense for the choices that we've made, for the character that we've built with our time on earth? This life then became a time of probation, probation to see what we'll choose. Will we choose to follow the Savior and accept his mercy? And I, I think it's very interesting that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, once they felt that forgiveness, once the pain was taken from their hearts of sin, well, they just couldn't go back. They just couldn't risk it. Um, and, you know, that is such a thorough conversion uh, that it gives me pause about the things that I find um, are sort of perpetually in front of me that, uh, as Nephi says, the sins that do so easily beset me um, and that I don't seem to have as thorough of a commitment to um, burying those sins deep in the ground and never touching them again. It seems, you know, these are lessons that I'm learning, but I'm not the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, but I can learn from them about my discipleship. I, can I just end with an amen? And a, hmm. And as we talked about before, a thanks for calling us to this time of solemnity, a time of fasting and prayer. Um, we will close this session with a closing prayer offered by Aaron Brown. Aaron is, uh, bills himself as a recovering attorney. He's a well-known blogger. <laughs> Most important for this session, he is an, a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Aaron? Can you see me? Yes. And you can hear me. Okay. <clears throat> Our dear kind Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this day. We thank thee for the opportunity we've all had to participate in this Sunday school. And we appreciate the time and effort and preparation of Professor Steele. We ask that the Spirit be with all of us today, that we may leave and apply the teachings of the Book of Alma in our lives, that we might learn better how to mourn with those that mourn, and to be proximate to those with pain and suffering in their lives. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.